0: look at the spiritual crisis worldwide I wish we could measure it but I think the Peterson phenomenon of last year uh, speaks volumes for the hunger for a logical spirituality some kind of a grounded spirituality that has not nothing to do with the dogma that we all get turned off by in our catechism classes or wherever and um and has everything to do with wisdom and and so his lectures on the psychological significance of the biblical stories is the perfect bridge it's uh christianity for atheists it's um and i think it speaks volumes for the appetite of the world like to follow along in the show notes you can browse on over to synthesismeaning.me under the podcast section podcast one there is a uh, show notes link into a pdf there's also a referral link and other references uh, and linkages so with no further ado here we go episode one Outline and the uh, whole of the whole um, structure going forward. You can consult the show notes on the website. Um, integrate some of these visuals from the PowerPoints um, so that uh, you can consult the visuals along the way. But hopefully, audio will work for you as well if you're driving in the car or whatever. General for for a second because I think this powerful set of images that uh, Mark Passio covered recently on, I think it was around 2.15, maybe, his Tarot Cards uh, podcast. There was two of them. Well, two plus a call show. And there's two Trees of Life, Kabbalah Trees of Life, next to one another, that have the Tarot Cards plotted onto the Sephiros. Sephiroth means knowledge, or knowledge base, I believe. But... um this is going to look kind of out there, people who have seen it, who are just seeing it for the first time. But it's really an exciting framework, framework's a good word I like to use, uh, for thinking about the path of the fool or the journey of the soul um, at two different levels. And I think it also works, lends itself well to the shadow work concept, so... Maybe, I didn't really get into the shadow work concept too much last episode, but my interpretation of shadow work is really experiencing life as a mirror. So whatever's coming up for you inside, which is the microcosm, or outside, which is the macrocosm, um, is pointing you to your next blockage, or your next lesson, essentially. And if you start to... uh, Pay attention in that uh, in that manner. You can learn and grow from every single curveball that comes along, and uh, and essentially climb these trees. So there's a image later in the in the PowerPoint of the chakras, and I think most people have seen the concept of raising your vibrations through the chakras and eventually turning on your Third eye. Well, this is a similar concept, and each one of the card images here has been placed to symbolize um, where you're at in your vibration, essentially. And the idea is to journey up internally and journey up externally um, until you eventually, internally, are the magician. So that means. You know how to, it's like an architect or an engineer, you know how to make the most of what you've been given, materially, talents, skills, experiences, to essentially create, uh, access your creative intelligence, to solve problems uh, for yourself and in the world, essentially. So that's what I think of it in terms of um, the magician, and the justice card, in terms of macro, is the top, and that is basically being fully in tune with natural law, the natural order of things, living in accordance with the natural order of things. So we'll get into more, more of that in future episodes. When I'm talking about shadow work and when I'm talking about micro-macro, these are kind of the images I've got in my mind. And I think it's a very powerful journey. I am a novice on this particular framework. It works for me in concept. So hopefully we can all kind of master it along the way. The standing structure of the shows, what I'd like to do in general is any any comments, feedback, topics, events from the last show. Uh, I guess (laughs) the, the comment is that I haven't set up the... The channel for the community yet, but that'll come in time. I've got to call in to some friends that are experts on, uh, on Discord anyway, and so I don't have a lot of feedback yet. The first podcast really was just posted, I think, on the weekend, so um, you can find links on the site, of course. Defer announcements to the next episode. The second standing item will be pull a tarot card, so if that's working properly, the tarot card will kind of give us a, a signal or a nod towards what the kind of energetic theme is of the week. Um, again, I'm fairly, I mean, I know I have the general gist of the tarot cards, but I actually have to look them up to get the detailed interpretations. But it's not really future telling. It's just more set the tone. Set the tone of the vibe for the week essentially, so that's what we'll we'll go to next. I've been on uh, group calls, many of them, where we talk about the microcosm, we talk about themes and challenges that come up in our lives during the week, and it is unbelievably incredible how synchronistic those conversations can get, where two or three themes emerge in everyone's life that's on the call. You could have six or eight people scattered all over the world. And two or three themes that are happening in one person's life is happening in everyone's life. And so it becomes really powerful and connecting to talk through that and try and rise above it. So rather than getting mired in the in the weekly uh, minutia, together kind of collaborating through what, what are the lessons and how to look at it positively and that kind of thing. So that's what we'll shoot for in the first half of the podcast, is generally. And then uh, in the second half, we'll either have a guest or a special topic or a call in, or we'll have a macrocosm topic. So today is Unabomber. I, I really, um, I've been impressed really with his writing. I don't know if any of you read it when back in the day. I guess I was old enough to read it at the time, but just like, just like the Waco, Camp Davidians, you know, the, the marketing, marketing if I can call it, the media around the language around the Unabomber, just to call it the Unabomber Manifesto, I mean, it just made you not want to look, right? But the, the branding made you not want to look. It's just like, what if my friends see me reading the Unabomber Manifesto? They're going to think I'm going crazy. So I never looked. And even the Camp Davidians, you know, they used to they used to announce how many Camp Davidians, quote unquote, were killed in the in the uh, what do you call that in the onslaught by the FBI back in the day, or the um, what are they called the uh, tobacco, alcohol, tobacco and firearms ATF. So. Yeah, they they would announce the number of Camp Davidians, but the way it sounded coming into my ears at the time was aliens. The number of Martians that were killed in the onslaught by the FBI. So you you don't think of the human uh, at the time. I I I really have felt nothing for those people. They were so um, what do you call dehumanized in the media that it wasn't until I watched the recent um, Netflix miniseries. That really did a great job at humanizing them, and get you in touch with the the unbelievable tragedy of that of those events. So, same thing with Unabomber. I mean, the his his action. He was. I mean, we'll go through it today, and you'll come to your own conclusions. But he he was definitely off base in some respects. But he had a lot of a lot of. Relevant things to say that are or to say that are still relevant today. Um, he wrote a book in. Well, he, I think was, he probably started in 2003. I'm not sure when it was published. I think fairly recently. It's called Anti-Tech Revolution: Why and How by Theodore John Kaczynski. I've got it here. I read about a third of it. Um, he definitely started writing in 2003. Uh, and it's basically supporting his thesis so far anyway for the manifesto. So we'll be able to get into that. We probably won't be able to get through the whole thing, but um, hopefully I can take you to what I think some of his greatest points are. And uh, I, I think he, the place he was most off base is what to do about it. <laughs> but uh, we, can, we can explore that together. So that's the macrocosm topic for today. Um, and then we'll finish with taking up the quiz from last week. And I've got a few quiz questions for next week, so I haven't done the the Survey Monkey or such, but I think that'll be pretty easy for me to link that into the website. So hopefully coming soon. Otherwise it'll be just be an audible trivia, which is that that's fine too. I hope I hope it's fine with you. Uh, okay, so let's start with a with a tarot card. I'll shuffle away here. And it's a brand new deck. It's the uh, Rider Weight Radiant Tarot Deck. It's like a mini size, so you can actually hold them and shuffle them like a deck of cards. And we'll see. I don't know who believes in these energies, but in my experience, your deck over time kind of starts to resonate with your energies. This is a brand new deck. I've barely touched it before, so I'm not sure how how magical this first one will be. We'll see. <laughs> see what it comes up with. So I'll shuffle, and I guess I'll just do like poker style, cut the deck, pull a card. Let's see what we've got. Swords. Two of swords. I would, I would try and hazard a guess what this is about, but I think it's easier for me to go to the actual... Interpretation. And then, here it is. That was easy. We can maybe interpret further. Two of Swords. A hoodwinked figure. So she's blindfolded. She's got two giant swords crossed. And uh, an upside-down sliver of a moon above her. And she's facing you with her back to the sea. A hoodwinked figure balances two swords upon her shoulders. Divinatory meanings. Conformity and the equipoise, which it suggests, courage, friendship, affection, concord in the state of arms, intimacy. If it comes up upside down, which it didn't, uh, so the opposite of the of the bright side is imposture, falsehood, duplicity, disloyalty. So that's interesting. I would say this is all about integrity, conformity, equipoise, which it suggests, courage, friendship, affection. Concord in a state of arms, intimacy. So that's really interesting. Integrity as it as it relates to relationships. So we'll just hold that out and see. I don't know if I'll tie that in or not, or if it'll just be an image attached to the uh, to the posting. I I really uh, don't have a deep connection to the minor arcana yet, but uh, that's what it's all about. We're learning as we go here. So that's the outline. So that's the standing program, the intention, shadow work in the micro and the macro. Uh, Talk a little bit about themes and observations and kind of what's happening and trends, I guess you'd say, uh, in our week. And then we'll do a deep dive into the Unabomber Manifesto, which I think you'll find interesting. Well, yes, the first topic I wanted to cover that is just burning on my mind lately. I see it everywhere, and um, Mark Passio has actually been on it, too, in his own way. This concept of adultism, which Michael Sarion's on it as well, big time. He's written a book called Adultism, and I think he had two or three shows. Uh, I remember listening to one in the summer where he had a guest that was a bit of an expert on adultism. I think it's a really powerful concept to get. Mark Passio uses the language master and slave, to be as confronting as he can with the language, which I think, in his case, it's really, really good. But it probably turns a lot of people off. But, um so what's this idea? Lord of the Flies. Maybe that's the best, the best way to think of it. Uh, which is, by the way, I've got this blog post burning in my mind of the meaning to write for about four months, so hopefully this is the week I get that away. But, um, adultism i I think you won't believe it and or you won't yeah you won't believe it until you start paying attention to it. How many people on this earth are going through I'm talking about fifty year olds forty year olds thirty year olds sixty year olds seventy year olds going through their life thinking that the adults are someone else, the adults are somewhere someone else worrying about the problems of the world, going to solve the problems of the world. Like we're completely conditioned into a permanent state of infantilism in our mind. Hedonism, soak it up now, worry about it later. But I don't mean, okay, so the the Lord of the Flies. You got like 12-year-old boys stranded on a desert island. They kind of naturally have a leadership structure. I think it might be their rank or their age or something like that. Right off the bat. There's a guy that kind of takes the lead naturally. And he's got two or three intelligent lieutenants that help him lead through uh, reason, essentially. And slowly, I won't ruin the book for you, but slowly, um, hunters that breaks off and they become the kind of might is right side. Um, And they, they slowly end up resenting the leadership by intelligence and reason, and they um, they basically lead through brute force. So the biggest and the strongest is the leader. And what it happens through the story is most of the guys from the from the leading by reason and intelligence side of the island migrate to the might as right. Almost everyone is more comfortable in that environment where they know how things work. It's, it's, um, it's out in the open. They're not, what do you call it, survival of the fittest. You can see
1: <laughs>
0: how, And I, I mean, in the workplace, you see it all the time. But essentially, people run away from their own responsibility. Well, maybe that's the best way to put it. They're absolutely terrified of being in char- fully in charge of their own life. Um, and they c- couldn't be happier if they can delegate responsibilities and worries to some anonymous agency somewhere that's going to make them feel like everything's taken care of. So that's that's kind of the massive... If there's one massive conspiracy, quote-unquote, that's happening in the world, it's the trade-off of, look, I'll look the other way, and I'll stay childish in my way of being. If you just pretend that you're going to look after me, and that everything's going to be okay, and, um, and you're taking care of things. You know what I'm saying? you are, I'm talking about the state, I'm um, talking about um, the military, the police, all these structures. So, it's sort of like adults. I'm talking about anybody over the age of 25 uh, is conduced, are conduced into permanent state of of uh, Peter Pan syndrome, essentially, and they let everyone else, or they, or they let, they, they're happy to look the other way and let let some anonymous forces make the big decisions for them, which is essentially choosing slavery over freedom. So you're choosing slavery. You're saying, you know, in a sense, mom, I'll keep living in your basement. If you keep paying the bills and worrying about the world, uh, I'll stay here in a childish psychological state and Everybody will be happy. I never have to grow up, and you never have to worry about me being a free, independent, grown uh, adult. And now, I'm not talking about moms and dads in this case. I'm talking about the state. So it's in the state's interest to have uh, a population that's in a permanent state of uh, psychological infancy, essentially. And that's... that's. Um, I'm seeing it everywhere nowadays and I think it's a theme that'll come up over and over. This idea when you're put in a spot where you can take responsibility, take full responsibility of your situation or choose slavery and look the other way and let somebody else take care of it. Uh, Pay attention to who's making uh, the second choice uh, in your life. I think you'll be surprised uh, how often everyone is choosing the slavery option. Um, Okay, so some other themes that I noticed this week. uh, Well, I had a small little glitch. I think it was something really specific that I ate at a popular steakhouse recently. Not not that recently, like five weeks ago. But it set me on a path of low vibration that it's taken me five weeks to get back To almost normal like that's how difficult one toxin that I ingested and it put me on a path of like bad sleeps bad cravings I had some junky meals right around that time and just uh, not myself for weeks I just think about at the macro level people all over the world I mean I had today (laughs) I had a Thai iced tea that was so loaded with sugar that i i couldn 't even taste one i couldn 't even have one sip I mean it was just a cotton candy glass of, of quote unquote iced tea and I love Thai food but um these <laughs> these unhealthy foods are all over the place, and people that aren 't aware of the impact of their choices it 's so easy if you 're not paying a lot of attention to your vibration to ha- to kind of have a Have a cheat day and have something bad Uh, if you're out one day, and next thing you know, you're on a pattern of terrible diet, but it affects everything, your sleep, your mental capacities. I went to uh, kind of a lunch meeting uh, maybe a week ago, and um, I've never been there for a meal before. And I came back after that meal, and I thought I made some fairly healthy choices, and I had severe brain fog. Like, I couldn't barely remember my name. And then it got really sleepy. So <laughs> uh, I think it was something in the chicken wing sauce, you know? Not, uh, and maybe it was just me. I'm extremely sensitive to certain things. It's just the point that if you're not managing your diet and paying attention to your healthy vibrations, your cravings, you can affect, you can go down. I think so many people are doing this you make a lazy choice one day and it leads to like 10 lazy choices the next day and next thing you know like weeks go by and you haven't had a <laughs> yeah, haven't had an intelligent thought or an insightful thought, you know? If you're not paying attention. Very very easy. Alcohol's another one, another favorite. I think alcohol is an unbelievably good example of free will <laughs> that you have to it doesn't work to prohibit it generally. In the West, definitely. Prohibiting alcohol is a bad idea. You're just way better off to let people realize what the right level is for them, um, and choose choose whatever the, the healthy version of, uh, of alcohol intake is. Um, but it's a doozy. It's another one that you can have a couple of you can make a couple of wrong turns, and, and weeks go by. I guess I can tell one little anecdote that shaped my view of alcohol. Um, I was traveling, you know, once-in-a-lifetime trip around Southeast Asia, and I was on my own at this at this point. Got to Thailand, and you're kind of jet-lagged. Came in from I can't remember where. Might have been East Africa, or anyway, not not important. But I got to Thailand, jet-lagged. Met a hilarious guy that I'm still friends with from Australia. And um, naturally just went for a couple drinks and uh, game of pool just to help you go to sleep, basically. Next day, you know, and then you have a terrible sleep. Next day you sleep in, you don't have any plan. You don't get really moving until mid-afternoon. Too late to do anything. You end up having more and more drinks. Uh, You end up having a bad sleep. It, It, like, total domino effect until three days go by and you haven't yet done any of the travel, tourism, uh, any of the sightseeing that you really wanted to do. And you haven't even really enjoyed the nights out either because you're not really there for that. And so at that time, I kind of just stepped back and reflected like, not only, you know, this trip, I'm, I'm wanting to see the world and this is going to really screw it up. That was my thinking. I decided for the rest of that trip to go, to go dry, but uh, it really made me reflect, what's the implications of that for real life? I mean, is that what's what's happening in my real life? When I'm home, you know, how much am I missing because because alcohol is such a big part of our social life? So anyway, that's been a constant kind of reflection, and I never did get to bridge over River Kwai in in Thailand. I had a day trip, and I actually missed it for three days and never, ever went, so I think that's just a lifetime lesson for me, that I, I really pay attention to how it affects my days, essentially. Uh, and But I love it socially, but uh, it's just something that needs to be managed, and right up along the line of junk food and, and vibrations. Attention spans, that's something I've been noticing a lot lately. Again, I don't know if it's diet, or if it's um, smartphones, or if it's binge-watching Netflix or what it is, but most people in my life, they, have, they don't even have 10 seconds. If you have something to say, you got to get it in like two and a half seconds. <laughs> it's unbelievable how, uh, how short. Like people will be telling you whatever's going, whatever drama is going on in their life and you have like literally a 30-second anecdote that's completely relevant and they can't, they don't follow it. I mean, I'm also finding the sense of humor. Like, people people are even having a hard time just, like, having a laugh. Like, just being relaxed enough to listen to a little anecdote or a joke and having a laugh. Like, they're just so um, atomized, I guess, in their little worlds that they can't take time to make the space for a good laugh. It's, it's really, really shocking, and I think attention spans are right along with that. So I don't know what's happening in meetings, you know. If, that, if the attention, I know the older people, I, I think they can still pay, pay close attention, but I don't know if the, if the younger generations, what they're thinking about in the meetings, because in personal interactions, they can't pay attention for nanoseconds. So are they able to follow these long 90-minute meetings? I'm not sure. They seem to, but uh, anyway, uh, I don't know how this attention span thing is going to go from here, but it's, it's scary. It's really, really scary, like pe- how people are droneized really, in a lot of ways. And I think this is related. So if you go down the list, the vibrations, the toxicities, the bad foods, the, bad, uh, the um, excessive alcohol, the attention spans a uh, lack of sense of humor, but I think it's not that they don't have a sense of humor, they don't make space for it. Um, and then I've got spontaneous authenticity, like people just relaxed enough, something funny happens, you know, having a laugh about it. Like people are just so, I don't know if it's self-conscious or just addicted to their thought stream. I'm not sure what it is, but um, to get into a space where people are just relaxed and spontaneous, I think one aspect of it and this is close to the the lord of the flies thing I think a lot of people are falling into this trap of constantly competing and comparing themselves to everyone and everything in their space. And so you can't that's not funny. <laughs> you can't have a laugh if you're if you're competing and comparing, you can't have a laugh because you think you've given something to the other person. You know? <laughs> so um I think that that's what's happening, the spontaneous authenticity. You have to be relaxed enough to be present enough to let you know authentic moments happen. And people are in this compete and compare mindset. And I think it's directly related to scarcity. They think there's only so much to go around. And it's survival of the fittest, social Darwinism, and it puts them into uh, an addiction to their own thought stream. They're in this little... Compete and compare world and they really have our time just relaxing and enjoying the moment because well somebody's taught them that life is about competing with your friends and neighbors and and peers uh, and that just destroys the moment basically <laughs> you're you're constantly competing and comparing so you're constantly in your own mind keeping some kind of a arbitrary score uh, so yes these Go together in my mind. The attention spans, the uh, spontaneous authenticity. Okay, I listened to the book um, End of All Evil today. I'm almost finished. It's incredible. It's incredibly concise and powerful. It's like a three-hour book that solves the world, essentially. But um, one of the things he says is that truth is simple. Bureaucracy, complexity, obfuscation. When you're into complexity and nuance, like economics, multiple degrees of economics, degrees I mean like derivatives and all the complexity you can have around that, you're getting away from truth when you're you're overcomplicating things. And so, well, one thing I notice is that people fall in love with the complexity they think they've mastered in their work, in their work life, because it's like this artificial knowledge world where they're just debating the most meaningless minutia. Um, I always think of that analogy about debating how many angels can fit on the end of a pin, of the end of a pin. When I hear people talking about unbelievable, unnecessary complexity, I just think they are—they're deliberately. It's like a—it's like a—I don't know how to put it. It's a circle jerk. <laughs> it's a circle jerk of an of imaginary knowledge base. I don't mean that you know there's not value in in competency and mastering your profession, and but but it just seems like people go way too far, and they get off on that, meaning that the bigger barrier there is between the Uh, Joe Public, the expert, the happier they are. (laughs) But the chances are, the further they are from simplicity, the more lost they are, I think. The temptation to overcomplicate things, to me, is directly related to obfuscation and bureaucracy. And typically, it's, um, it's unnecessary. It's like... It's way over the top, unnecessary. But anyway, so that's that was that's one aspect. The other is that, and this is directly related to the compete and compare mentality. I don't know if it's just me. I I, I was trained like we took ethics courses in college, and then we had to pass ethics exams in our professional accreditations. And like, there's always an ethics section in every professional accreditation I've ever had. And so code of conduct plus um, like my peer group, there was like a code, you know, there's, there's just an unwritten code. The sports I played, there's an unwritten code. So I've, I've just lived my life by, I mean, it's, you know, obviously I've made mistakes, but it's always in the air. And I'm always aware of what, that there is a code and that, um, you know, there's a peer group that's going to basically vote you off the island if you violate the code. Current work environments, I uh, there there isn't a lot of recognition of of a code. Everyone has their own, I guess, at some level. But uh, it seems like the younger people get the less they're comfortable with the idea of a code of conduct or professional ethics, or the idea that you have that you situations can arise that you can confront management. Um, because it violates your own professional code. Most people that I've been interacting with for the last 10 years, I mean, their eyes roll back in their head if you try and have that conversation. I guess that's, I'm just talking about the workplace. Those are two aspects of the workplace, the modern workplace, that I think we're getting a bit lost, that we get off on obfuscation, and that a lot of people think, that uh, professional ethics is just something from textbooks, I think. They aren't willing to take a risk to guide themselves by their own code. A lot of people, I guess I should say. Finally, uh, the, this, this compete and compare, it turns, it seems to breed envy, jealousy, um, and that is incredible that, I mean, the people... Well, I I noticed this with Jordan Peterson, let's say that, let's say his, I haven't had a chance to see his latest documentary, but I think a lot of people would just wish he'd go away because he's such a transparent mirror, you know, he's just such a great example of somebody that committed themselves to their profession and, and not knocked it out of the park. So his success makes everyone feel like, what have I been doing for the last 30 years, you know? So um, that creates envy and jealousy and just they wish they could just muzzle him (laughs) because the comparison, the mirror is just too bright, essentially. Um, But even on a smaller scale, I notice in daily life that when you are vibrating, when, when you are feeling healthy and together and aligned and purposeful, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable, like to the point where they unconsciously will like get in your way or they'll unconsciously. Uh, sometimes the, sometimes it's, it's, I guess you could say it's flattering. They, they are kind of drawn to your, to your vibration, but um, more often than not, they just like it to go away. <laughs> so, uh, which is sad really, you know, when you have, when you have somebody that, that you, you can see they've got something going on that you you haven't figured out yet. It's too bad you can't you can't hold them up as a as a as an admirational aspiration essentially. So anyway, that this is um I thought these strings might these are just kind of some things I've been noticing a lot lately and I'll flesh them out more, but I think the biggest one is this master slave adultism idea. If you're if you're over 25 and you would rather That there's somebody that you don't even know making some big decisions for you in your life, um, then I think that, uh, well, that you're choosing slavery when you do that, whenever you do that. If you'd rather give 60% of your wages to some anonymous entity and let them worry about everything, uh, you're choosing slavery. Pay attention to that, adultism. Maybe I can find the definition, there is a textbook definition uh, out there somewhere. And share it somewhere in the links it's a powerful concept. I mean, you can see it you can see it with children in school. you know when I think that my son is being trained that he has to ask somebody when he can go to the bathroom, I mean just like we all did that's really, really despicable. you know we're teaching the child that there's somebody that can tell them when they can have their bodily functions, you know like that's just. We're, we're training them to be a slave in that situation. And, uh, and I think that's disgusting. So that breaks my heart. When, when you think about the potential, I mean, I guess the whole point of this, the, the, the Kabbalah tree and the, and the tarot cards and the magician at the top, the whole point of this is to work through until you're comfortable, at least you can envision what your sovereign self would live like. So if you were alive in the Game of Thrones era, would your kingdom be like if you were the master of of your sovereign space? You're the king of your castle, both internally and externally. And imagine the freedom and the brilliance of that. If you can get in touch with that, Then you know kind of what you're shooting for in terms of the microcosm shadow work to get past any hiccups where you think that somebody else is better making decisions for you in your personal life. That's really the goal of the shadow work to get in touch with your sovereign imperial self. And there's a good news, bad news, (laughs) there's a good news, bad news story on this whole thing actually. The good news is uh, it's just knowledge. It's just getting comfortable with what that would really look and feel like and working towards it. You have to do a lot of learning. You have to do a lot of unlearning, really, of, of bad uh, messages we've had over the years. But um, if you can get in touch with uh, your inner brilliance and and basically, fight anything that gets in the way of that. Then you're well on your way. And so I think, you know, that could be three months for some people, could be ten years for others. But it's just a matter of knowledge, of of uh, educating yourself and paying attention. Uh, so that's the good news that it's completely accessible to any individual at any time. That's the good news. The bad news is individual sovereignty in the macro. I mean, when you take a look around, it's, it, it seems like it's a long way off. But I guess that if we focus on ourselves and if each individual could actually get there in a three-month period, then there's no reason why the whole, the whole thing could tilt that fast once people start to realize that, that's, that we're choosing slavery on a daily basis. That's, that's, the, that's the positive on the microcosm, and that's really the ultimate goal. That's the magician at the top of the tree, the personal sovereignty. If you can imagine what the master of your domain, the true sovereign master of your life, how that would look and feel like, the brilliance of that, um, the god of your life, the hero of your life, if you can imagine that, then you can get there. So... um, so uh, Mark you know Mark Passio is is really uh pissed off <laughs> because he's been teaching for gosh 9 years he's been doing 9 years he's been doing the podcast I think it is he's got over 220 episodes um but I mean he was teaching before that but um people are constantly and I and I'm I'm in touch I'm 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 in touch with his hostility, but I'm also grateful that I can see it. I can see the gap between where I am and where he is and where humanity is and where we need to be. And so I'm grateful for that, that uh, he's yelling directly at me <laughs> and I'm hearing him. So I think that's a, that's an unbelievable gift for me at the moment. And um, um, he's pissed off because uh, people are weak or maybe that's unfair, but people fall for so many easy little trip-ups. Uh, they pitch a tent somewhere before the summit. So they're quite happy. <laughs> if you look at that tree of life, they're quite happy to take a left turn and end up in an imbalanced frame of mind. They don't get all the way to the magician. They take a left turn, and they end up at one of these, one of these uh, places that feels good, feels like you got somewhere, you know, but they're actually stuck with one side of the brain only working. They're not they're not fully integrated sovereign beings, and they're quite happy to stay right there. They actually kind of commit to it, you know? I got I found whatever, say, and I don't I don't want to slam at each stage when I found these different teachers. Like I think David Hawkins, I think I stumbled on him in my mid 30s or maybe even early 30s. And I thought it was brilliant, but somehow I kept researching and eventually I came to Eckhart Tolle and I thought he was brilliant, and Osho, I thought he was brilliant. (laughs) And then I I stumbled on a book, an e-book that's available for free online, called uh, Confessions of a New Age Heretic. And I don't know, it was 10 or 12 chapters, but it was outstanding. It was an extremely courageous book by a a woman who was a um, Transcendental Meditation instructor, and she confessed basically all the flaws in the New Age teachings and how she went full bore into New Age, into Transcendental Meditation, and how it ruined her life. She lost a marriage over it, and she got unhealthy, and even I think her mental health suffered, and, and she explained how... It's an imbalance, basically. So somewhere around that time, I continued to search and then slowly came down these paths. And I think I'm really close. I think Peterson is, is a well-integrated individual. Mark Passio is a well-integrated individual. I can see the gap. I can see when I'm stuck. And I, I can see I, I have a lot of work to do. But, but I haven't declared myself successful yet. <laughs> I think that's the trap when you get into uh, one of these left turns and you think you've arrived, but really you're just in a cul-de-sac on the way to the truth. I guess that's the trick. To keep that that knowledge, the the good news, okay. (laughs) There's a little bit of a digression, but I think it's an important one. Somewhere along the way we get the idea that our emotions, we can trust our emotions, and our emotions are who we are and that is going to tell us right and wrong okay so then that sounds nice okay i know when i get upset then that means something wrong has happened and that's right and wrong okay but you have to think this is the part that i don't know why we don't this is not well taught at all so say you're a two-year-old certain things get you upset you're a four-year-old certain things get you upset six eight ten twelve 14. Each age, different things get you upset. Why does it change? Well, yeah, partly you are emotionally maturing, but partly you're getting a better and better understanding of of how the world works, basically. And that comes from your understanding, your experience, but also your knowledge. Now, at some point, we just stop. We just stop learning and think, now we're, we've we've reached. Now we're in our whatever in our 30s we don't have to learn anything anymore we can trust our emotions now but the truth is that the more knowledge you acquire the more understanding you get the more experience you acquire your emotions then get tempered so my point is that knowledge (laughs) is the answer knowledge and understanding to, to, to unlock all the locks on all the the cages of our minds and our hearts and our souls, okay, as Mark puts it. But, uh, so that's it. I mean, I don't know, I just, I'm extremely grateful recently because I I feel like I I can see a path. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be five years or 10 years or six months or eight months, but I feel like I can see a path where I can evolve my understanding of the fundamental principles of living a sovereign life to the point where I can actually bring my behaviors into alignment and live a sovereign life. I could see that happening in the next five years, and that is extremely gratifying to me. But the, there's, the heavy lifting is the learning, so that you get your understanding right so you get your instincts right you get your intuitions right you get your behaviors right that's the that's the like the best kept secret that there's that there's there is a knowledge base out there that you can go after and help yourself evolve this idea this new age idea of just surrender um eat grasshoppers and honey and meditate on a mountaintop that is a cul-de-sac that's going to have you stuck. That's the uh, New Age heretic, Confessions of the New Age heretic. So you can actually snap yourself out of psychological infancy by educating yourself, by recognizing that there's a level of understanding that can get you there. And that is, well, when you realize how far you have to go, I guess it's a bit discouraging, but for me right now, I find that unbelievably gratifying, that there's a path, the information's all out there, uh, I can follow my instincts and learn what I need to learn, and I can get there. And that is really exciting to me. So that's that's my plan on the micro. In terms of the macro, I'm not really sure my path, except for, as I mentioned in, in episode zero, that, that um, I'm going to start having a crossover with, with local networking groups and, and go from there. I, I really don't know what, what my path forward is on the macro. But the micro, absolutely, I know what I need to do. And I'm on the track, and I'm grateful that there are some voices and people out there that are teaching and uh, unbelievable resources still to learn from. So that's exciting. Uh, so that's really the, the micro commentary that would bring us over into the Unabomber topic, which I will jump into probably as much as I can for the first bit, and I might have a little break and come back, but it'll all be in one segment. So, so that's the gist of the microcosm. So microcosm, I, I mean, what was your image when the Unabomber was in the media in the, in the I think, early 90s or late 80s? I mean, it was a punchline in my life, it was like, the the guy's so crazy, you know, he lived off the land, he cut himself off from society, he has this manifesto, I mean, the manifesto was a punchline, he just was this crazy, fringe kook, right, nobody told you the, um, nobody told you anything, and they really discouraged you from looking, so I was shocked how much he had to say um, that was worthwhile, so we'll get into that in a second. But not only that, I mean, he was obviously misled, but he was, uh, in terms of his mind, he was, um, he was a math professor at Berkeley. He was a published uh, mathema- mathematician. He had like six papers published in, in um, academic journals, respected academic journals, that they say only uh, like a dozen mathematicians in the world could understand the, the brilliance of them, but he did get published by his peers. So he had uh, unbelievably sharp mind um, and intellect. And his writing was extremely coherent and concise. In terms of the book, um, it's easy to read, easy to follow. Uh, so far, it seems like he is going to try and just um, flesh out his thoughts, from the Manifesto. So basically um, uh, cite and source and and defend his, his thoughts. I, I haven't seen or heard anything yet so far in the book that is a major departure from his original writing. So maybe I shouldn't be surprised. It's available on Amazon and uh, I think it's going to be an easy read. So far it's an easy read. I, I guess I would be remiss to not like at least point out that well for me (laughs) almost anything that comes through the mainstream media makes me think like got through all of the gates of the mainstream media that means they probably wanted us to know about you so I, i i i've never heard anything ever and i've never done any research on you know if the unabomber was actually a setup and a deliberate scare tactic, sort of like um, Timothy McVeigh and uh, Randy Weaver, Ruby Ridge, and Waco. You know, there's kind of around that time, there was a series of stories to frighten people away from experimenting outside of the culture. So this would definitely fit that, that theme. Um, and so, just from the miniseries, they suggested that he was a victim of some really grueling psychological experiments at Harvard. Uh, he got into Harvard, I think, at the age of sixteen or fifteen. He's very young, and um, so he was—he was just a, a child genius and and then blazing intellectual life. But somehow, maybe the maybe you know rushing into university. Who knows? <laughs> I'm sure someone has done a study on. On, uh, or a psychological analysis, but um, there's definitely an imbalance there. He didn't integrate with society the way normal people do, which isn't all bad. Uh, some of society shouldn't be integrated with, right? But anyhow, so in terms of conspiracy threads, that would be one of them, that he was around a time where they were um, marginalizing or they were, what do you call it, demonizing. People that were willing to challenge the mainstream culture and scaring people, basically, away from radical thoughts or radical worldviews. And so this was around that time, so it, it's totally possible that th- through the psychological experiments that he was a setup and a plant and, and somehow designed a time bomb, designed to scare everyone else away from moving into the woods and thinking big and thinking outside the box, I've never heard anything like that. So I'm not saying that I believe that. I'm just, I think I'd be remiss not to point out that every major publication printed his his manifesto. And I know that was because they they claimed they were they were threatened with violence. But um, <laughs> I don't know. Looking back, like whatever, ten major papers publishing. This 230-paragraph uh, thesis uh, all on the same day, it's just, it's, uh, uh, it's a little bit sus. Let's just put it that way. But it doesn't take away from the value of the thinking. So um, that's why I think it's worthwhile taking a look at it. All right. So let's jump into it. Okay. I've got the ability to, to browse through the paragraphs. So one second here the manifesto you can still google it it's available on all the major newspapers washington post is the one i'm i'm looking at but uh, i think it's all going to be identical it's written in a phd thesis format if you saw the if if you saw the show it was a big factor the way his writing style was a big factor in how they how they caught him so let's see if i can just what my idea is if it can work if i can keep the pace up and the interest up, that I just take the tidbits from each paragraph, the words, the thoughts from each paragraph, and just kind of uh, chew on them, basically c- contemplate what his point is, and I think on the paragraphs where I disagree or I think he's off base, I can, uh, I can add my own commentary, um, but I, like I said before, I think at least two-thirds of this he's got something important to say, and from a very, very, very sharp mind whole theme of the Bomber Manifesto, this is the text of a 35,000 manifesto. They called it Manifesto. I mean, that alone is going to marginalize it, right? I mean, it's a thesis. It's a thesis. Why, why would you, It was written by a PhD. So I guess at the time they didn't know he was a PhD, but why... Well, of course, at the time they didn't want to give him any credibility. It appeared September twenty second, 1995 in editions of the Washington Post. Then in June, that was September 22nd, yeah, in June, the text was sent in June 95 to the New York Times and Washington Post by the person who calls himself F.C. Um, so again, in the in the show, it was clear, he what was it called, Freedom Committee or something like that? It'll, it'll come up here. He referred to it as if it was a collective, but there was never any evidence there was more than just him. And he put F.C. on most of his bombs as well. He, it was etched in in different places. Everything was from f c and i I guess I'd be remiss not to say that the authorities have implicated in three murders and sixteen bombings, so some of the uh coverage in the miniseries was extremely graphic, so that it made that point clearly that it was there was a senseless senseless uh violence related to this uh and and innocent innocent victims. Um, the author threatened to send a bomb to an unspecified destination, with intent to kill, unless the newspapers published the manuscript. The Attorney General, I think, was Janet Reno, and the FBI recommended publication. Okay, so it's called Industrial Society and Its Future. Introduction. First, so he does this. I, I, this is a, a thesis format. So each paragraph is numbered, and then there's there's end notes and corrections later. But um, primary thesis of the thesis is this. They have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in advanced countries but they have destabilized society. They've made life unfulfilling and have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to the widespread psychological suffering, in the third world to physical suffering as well, and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world. The continued development of technology will worsen the situation. This is his thesis. It will certainly subject human to be beings to greater indignities and inflict greater damage on the natural world. It will probably lead to a greater social disruption and psychological suffering, and it may lead to increased physical suffering, even in advanced countries. I guess the if it, his one of his primary... Well, we'll get to it. He'll, we'll let him get us there in his own words. The industrial technological system may survive or it may break down. If it survives, it may eventually achieve a low level of physical and psychological suffering. Uh, Furthermore, if the system survives, the consequences will be inevitable. There is no way of reforming or modifying the system so as to prevent it from depriving people of dignity and autonomy. Okay, so he's starting out with his strongest points. This is his main, main, main thesis, and then he's going to build up the proof. So I I should probably just go along with his logic. If the system breaks down, the consequences will still be very painful. But the bigger system grows, the more disastrous the results of its breakdown will be. So if it's to break down, it has to break down. It's best if it breaks down sooner than later. We therefore advocate a revolution. This is him speaking in plural as FC. This revolution may or may not make use of violence, it may be sudden or maybe may be relative, just so everyone knows I'm not in favour of, of his conclusion, although I'm in favour of a lot of his analysis. We can't predict any of that, but we do outline a very general way, the measure that those who hate the industrial system should take and prepare in order to prepare the way for a revolution um, against that form of society. This is not to be a political revolution. Its objective will be to overthrow not governments, but the economic and technological basis of the present society, so i I have to put in some of my own commentary here that I just just like prohibition against alcohol, I just don't think prohibition against technology would work you're You're taking away people 's natural uh, proclivity to invent and betterment uh, um, Uh, improve human society. So, you know, they would call him a Luddite, I think. I don't remember exactly the story around the Luddites, but I know that they wanted to stop technological development, just like the Amish or the Mennonites think. The answer is to stay ahead of technology with psychological development, personally. If you work on your own perspective then you're constantly the master of, of the inventions, and then you know, just like Peterson said in the quote I used in the uh, above the podcast, that then you can be the sorts of people that can handle the tough decisions. It's that you don't have to ter- pull the plug and be afraid of the future. I mean that I think that that would be just that would be more tyranny than the tyranny that's created by the technology, personally. So let's carry on. In this article, we give attention only to some of the negative developments that have grown out of the industrial technological system. Other such developments we mention only briefly or ignore altogether. This doesn't mean blah, blah, blah. blah. This is just a caveat. We have written very little about environmental degradation. Okay, so that's a caveat. We can leave that. The psychology of modern leftism. Now, this is amazing to me. So this was published, what did I say, 1995? So he was probably writing this in the late 80s. I mean, it was like he saw the future. Almost everyone will agree that we live in a deeply troubled society. Uh, Passio calls this uh, a brain imbalance. You know, when you, you, like leftism or rightism, these are just brain imbalances. Uh, One of the most widespread manifestations of the craziness of the world is leftism. So a discussion of the psychology of leftism can serve as an introduction to the discussion of problems of modern society in general. But what is leftism? During the first half of the 20th century, leftism could have been practically identified with socialism. Today, the movement is fragmented, and it's not clear what you can call a leftist. When we speak of leftists, we have in mind mainly socialists, collectivists, politically correct types, feminists, gay and disability activists, animal rights activists, and the like. But not yet everyone, but not everyone who's associated with one of these movements is a leftist. What we are trying to get at in discussing leftism is not so much the movement or an ideology as a psychological type, or rather a collection of related types. Thus, what we mean by leftism will emerge more clearly in the course of our discussion of leftist psychology, which Passio would call brain imbalance. Even so, our conception of leftism will remain a good deal less clear than we would wish, but there doesn't seem to be any remedy for this. All we're trying to do here is indicate, in a rough and approximate way, the two psychological tendencies that we believe are the main driving force of modern leftism. By no means do we claim to be telling the whole truth about leftist psychology. Also our discussion, we leave open the question of the extent to which our discussion should be applied to leftists of the 19th and early 20th centuries. The two psychological tendencies that underlie leftism we call feelings of inferiority and over-socialization. Feelings of inferiority are the characteristic of modern leftism as a whole, while over-socialization is the characteristic of only a certain segment of modern leftism. But this segment is highly influential. Uh, feelings of inferiority, I think that that is exactly along the lines of psychological infancy, like I was saying earlier. Feelings of inferiority. By feelings we mean of inferiority, we mean not only inferiority and feelings in the street sense, but also a whole spectrum of related traits, low self-esteem, feelings of powerlessness, depressive tendencies, defeatism, guilt, self-hatred, etc. We argue that modern leftists tend to have such feelings possibly more or less repressed, repressed, and these feelings are decisive in determining the direction of modern leftism. When someone interprets as derogatory almost anything that is said about him or about groups with whom he identifies, we conclude that he has inferiority, feelings, or low self-esteem. This tendency is pronounced... I think this is kind of amazing, personally. This is just an aside. I mean, he was a fringe guy on the fringe of society for most of his life, and some of his insights are amazing. This is like seeing the beginning of the millennials, really, uh, or, or predicting the future of the millennial generation. This tendency is pronounced among minority rights activists, whether or not they belong to the minority groups whose rights they defend. They are hypersensitive about the words used to designate minorities and about anything that is said concerning minorities. The terms, and then he uses some like politically incorrect terms here in quotations, Okay, so he's trying to use dated terms like handicapped or oriental or chick. Okay? So he's using those in quotations to, to make the point that these leftists are sensitive About political correctness with these outdated terms okay so he wasn't he was these weren't racial slurs that that he was using here he was just referring to them in quotations Um, the negative connotations have been attached to these terms by the activists themselves animal rights activists have gone so far as to reject the word pet and insist on its replacement by animal companion okay I haven't heard that uh, but it doesn't surprise me. So there, that's another aspect of adultism, actually, the way we treat our pets. But that's an aside. Leftist anthropologists go to great lengths to avoid saying anything about primitive peoples that could conceivably be interpreted as negative. They want to replace the world by the world, the word "primitive" by "non-literate." They are almost paranoid about anything that might suggest that any primitive culture is inferior to our own. We do not mean to imply the primitive cultures are inferior to ours. We merely point out the hypersensitivity. So his writing is extremely careful and pointed. Those who are most sensitive about politically incorrect terminology, they are not the average. Then he goes through a list of immigrants and minorities who you would expect to be sensitive about the terms. But instead, they have a stronghold among university professors who have secure employment and comfortable salaries, and the majority of whom are heterosexual white males from middle to upper class families. So this is, I mean, this whole IDW intellectual dark web of the last two years, I mean, this is a major, major theme. That the people making all the noise aren't the people that are supposedly marginalized by by the terms. Many leftists have an intense identification with the problems of groups that have an image of being weak. Okay, so then he lists uh, minorities. The leftists themselves feel that these groups are inferior. They would never admit to themselves that they have such feelings, but it is precisely because they do see these groups as inferior that they identify with their problems. We do not mean to suggest that, that these groups are inferior. We're only making the point about leftist psychology. Okay, I see this myself now, that... This idea, it's, it's a master-slave thing, actually. So if you have, you know, the modern term is social justice warrior. If you have an SJW that wants to save the minority group, they're putting themselves in a parental position and this minority group in a child position without, you know, without even asking <laughs> the minority group and the minority group who's not asking for their for their rescue. So uh, that's what he's saying here. Okay, feminists are desperately anxious to prove that women are as strong and capable as men. Clearly they fear that maybe they're not. Okay? So he's this is a psychological analysis he's making here of these groups. Leftists tend to hate anything, tend to hate anything that has an image of being strong, good, and successful. They hate America, they hate Western civilization, they hate white males, they hate rationality. The reasons that leftists give for hating the West clearly do not correspond with their real motives. They say they hate the West because it's, they, it's warlike, imperialistic, sexist, ethnocentric, and so forth. But where these same faults appear in socialist countries, or in primitive countries, the leftist finds excuses for them. Or uh, he grudgingly admits that they exist. Where he enthusiastically points out, and often greatly exaggerates these faults, where they appear in Western civilization. Thus, it's clear that these faults are not the leftist's real motive for hating America. He hates America and the West because they are strong and successful. This is the point of The Road to Wigan Pier by uh, Orwell, I think. Right? Yes. So um, that's exactly the point. What's the real motive of the resentment? Words like self-confidence, self-reliance, initiative, enterprise, optimism play little role in the liberal and leftist vocabulary. The leftist is anti-individualistic, pro-collectivist. He wants society to solve everyone's problems, satisfy everyone's needs. He is not the sort of person who has an inner sense of confidence in his ability to solve his own problems and satisfy his own needs. Okay, there's this adultism thing. Okay, he wants society to solve his problems. The leftist is antagonistic to the concept of competition because deep inside he feels like a loser. Or in other words... Um, an overgrown child still living in his mother's basement, okay, same kind of metaphor. Art forms that appear, that appeal to modern leftism, leftist, leftish intellectuals tend to focus on sordidness, defeat, and despair, or else they take an orgiastic, orgiastic tone, throwing off rational controls of who was no hope Of accomplishing anything through rational calculation, and all that was left was to immerse oneself in the sensations of the moment. Hedonism. Modern leftist philosophers tend to dismiss reason, science, objective reality, and to insist that everything is culturally relative. Uh, Solipsism is a term that Marc Passio often uses for, for moral relativism. It's just this idea that there is no reality, And you could just make it up as you go, and it's one of the most dangerous belief systems on Earth that's taking over everybody because it leads you towards a hedonistic existence, which is fine by a lot of people in the short term. So this is, like unbelievably, this is exactly the the issue that got Jordan Peterson into the limelight with the Bill C-16 and the um, political correctness on campuses. It's true that one can ask serious questions about the foundations of scientific knowledge and about how, if at all, the concept of objective reality can be defined. But it is obvious that modern leftish philosophers are not simply cool-headed logicians systematically analyzing the foundations of knowledge. They are deeply involved emotionally in their attack on truth and reality. They attack these concepts because of their own psychological needs, for one thing, Their attack is an outlet for hostility, and to the extent that it is successful, it satisfies their drive for power. More importantly, the leftists hate science and rationality because they classify certain beliefs as true, i.e. successful and superior, and other beliefs as false, i.e. failed and inferior. The leftist's feelings of inferiority run so deep that he cannot tolerate any classification of some things as successful or superior, and other things as failed or inferior. This also underlies the rejection by many leftists of the concept of mental illness and the utility of IQ tests. Leftists are antagonistic to genetic explanations of human abilities or behavior because such explanations tend to make some persons appear superior or inferior to others. Leftists prefer to give society the credit or blame for an individual's ability or lack of it. Thus, if a person is inferior, it is not his fault but society's because he has not been brought up properly. The leftist is not typically the kind of person whose feelings of inferiority make him a braggart, an egotist, a bully, a self-promoter, a ruthless competitor. This kind of person has not only lost faith in himself, he has a deficit in his sense of power and self-worth, but he can still conceive of himself as having the capacity to be strong, and his efforts to make himself strong produce his unpleasant behavior but the leftist is too far gone for that. His feelings of inferiority are so ingrained that he cannot conceive of himself as individually strong and valuable. Hence, the collectivism. He can feel strong only as a member of a large organization a mass movement. Okay, I, I need to make this comment on this previous paragraph. Paragraph number 18, for anybody that's following along. He said, It's obvious that modern leftist philosophers are not simply cool-headed logicians. Systematically analyzing the foundations of knowledge. They are deeply involved emotionally in their attack. They attack these concepts with their own psychological needs. For one thing, their attack is an outlet for hostility, and the extent that it is successful, it satisfies a drive for power. More importantly, the leftish leftist hates science and rationality because they classify certain beliefs as superior and others as failed. The leftist's feelings of inferiority run so deep, deep that he cannot tolerate any classification as some things is successful and superior and other things as failed or inferior. This underlies the rejection by many leftists of the concept of mental illness and the utility of IQ tests. Leftists are antagonistic to genetic explanations of human abilities or behavior because such explanations tend to make them uh, appear superior or inferior. Leftists prefer to give society the credit or blame for an individual's ability or lack of it. Thus. If a person is inferior, it is not his fault, but society's, because he has not been brought up properly. So there's like a, this this, this is the thought that I came back to that one for. There's a flawed logic underneath <laughs> their thinking. Uh, if they think that, that, you know, we're all blank hard drives and society uh, imprints on us, just like a blank hard drive, so we're all completely equivalent and interchangeable, then I don't understand why they think there's an advantage in diversity. If we're all blank hard drives, what, what what value would there be in diversity? Doesn't make any sense, right? So diversity, the value in it is bringing different opinions, different points of view, different insights, but they're fundamentally believe that we're not different. <laughs> so this is just a contradiction right at the base of the whole thing. But anyway, So let's skip ahead, paragraph 20. Notice the masochistic tendency of leftist tactics. Leftists protest by lying down in front of vehicles. They intentionally provoke police or racists to abuse them. These tactics may often be effective, but many leftists use them not as a means to an end, but because they prefer masochistic tactics. Health hatred is a leftist trait because they're stuck in the master-slave mentality. Leftists may claim that their activism is motivated by compassion or by moral principles, and moral principle does play a role for the leftists of the over-socialized type. But compassion and moral principle cannot be the main motives for leftist activism. Hostility is too prominent a component of leftist behavior, so so is the drive for power. Moreover, much leftist behavior is not rationally calculated to be of benefit of the people for whom the leftists claim to be trying to help. For example, if one believes that affirmative action is good for um, people of color, does it make sense to demand affirmative action in hostile or dogmatic terms? Obviously, it would be more productive to take a diplomatic and conciliatory approach that would make a least verbal and symbolic concessions to white people who think that affirmative action discriminates against them. But leftist activists do not take such an approach because it would not satisfy their emotional needs. Helping people of color is not the real goal. Instead, race problems serve as an excuse for them to express their own hostility and frustrated need for power. In so doing, they actually harm people of color because the activist's hostile attitude towards the white majority tends to intensify the polarities between the races. So just to finish this chapter on the psychological state of the leftism. Paragraph 22, if our society had no social problems at all, all the leftists would have to invent problems in order to provide themselves with an excuse for making a fuss. I mean, he saw this coming like 25 years before it really took a fever pitch. Paragraph 23, we emphasize that the foregoing does not pretend to be an accurate description of everyone who might be considered a leftist. It's only a rough indication of a general tendency of leftism. And then he moves into over-socialization. Over-socialization. I won't uh, do the whole manifesto in this episode. I'll try and get us a good way through the first half. Pick it up in the next episode. Uh, Psychologists use the term socialization to designate the process by which children are trained to think and act as society demands. A person is said to be well-socialized if he believes in and obeys the moral code of his society and fits in well as a functioning part of that society. It may seem senseless to say that many leftists are over-socialized, since the leftist is perceived as a rebel. Nevertheless, the position can be ad- can be defended. Many leftists are not such rebels as they seem. The moral code of our society is so demanding that no one can think, feel, and act in a completely moral way. For example, we are not supposed to hate anyone, yet almost everyone hates somebody at some time or another whether he admits it to himself or not. Some people are so highly socialized that the attempt to think, feel, and act morally imposes a severe burden on them. In order to avoid feelings of guilt, they continually have to deceive themselves about their own motives and find moral explanations for feelings and actions that in reality have non-moral origin. We use the term over-socialized to describe such people. Over-socialization is... I think it might be his biggest fame of his whole point. Uh, though Peterson's uh, talks, Jordan Peterson from U of T, he, um, he explains that you know it's a compromise from age two onward. Play on the playground, you've got you've got to make that compromise of leaving some of the self behind. And developing the socialized self, which is which is, a, which is a, comp- a compromise but necessary for a functioning community okay, paragraph 26. oversocialization can lead to, to low self-esteem, a sense of powerful, powerlessness, defeatism, guilt, etc. One of the most important means by which our society socializes children is by making them feel ashamed of behavior or speech that is contrary to society's expectations. If this is overdone, or if a particular child is especially susceptible to such feelings, he ends by feeling ashamed of himself. Moreover, the thought and the behavior of the over-socialized person are more restricted by society's expectations than are those of the lightly socialized person. The majority of people engage in a significant amount of naughty behavior. They lie, they commit petty thefts, they break traffic laws, they goof off at work, they hate someone, they say spiteful things, or they use some underhanded trick to get ahead of the other guy. The over-socialized person cannot do these things, or if he does do them, he generates himself a sense of shame and self-hatred. The over-socialized person cannot even experience without guilt, thoughts, or feelings that are contrary to the accepted morality. He cannot think unclean thoughts. And socialization is not just a matter of morality. We are socialized to conform to many norms of behavior that do not fall under the heading of morality. Thus, over-socialized person is kept on a psychological leash and spends his life running on rails that society has laid down for him. In many over-socialized people, this results in a sense of constraint and powerlessness that can be a severe hardship. We suggest that over-socialization is among the more serious cruelties that human beings inflict on one another. So, uh, I guess the point is the over-socialization. Socialization, there would be some of this compromise. It's a matter of the right balance. And he's suggesting that our current state of, of socialization is way over the top. I believe that this is another way of describing the shadow. Those parts of yourself that you have decided are unacceptable to society and you bury them deep down. But that's a topic for another day. We argue, paragraph 27, we argue that a very important and influential segment of the modern left is over-socialized and their over-socialization is of great importance determining the direction of modern leftism. leftism. Leftists of this type tend to be intellectuals Or members of the upper middle class. Notice that university intellectuals constitute the most highly socialized segment of society and also the most left-wing segment. The leftist of the over socialized type tries to get off his psychological leash and assert his autonomy by rebelling, but usually he's not strong enough to rebel against the most basic values of society. Generally speaking, the goals of today's leftists are not in conflict with accepted morality. On the contrary, the left takes an accepted moral principle, adopts it as its own, and then accuses mainstream society of violating that principle. Examples racial equality, equality of sexes, helping poor people, peace as opposed to war, nonviolence generally, freedom of expression, kindness to animals. More fundamentally, the duty of the individual to serve society and the duty of society to take care of the individual, all of these have been deeply rooted values of our society, or at least of its upper and middle classes. Of its, Yes, for a long time. These values are explicitly or implicitly expressed or presupposed in most of the material presented to us by the mainstream communications media and the educational system. Leftists especially those of the over-socialized type, usually do not rebel against these principles, but justify their hostility to society by claiming, with some degree of truth, that society is not living up to their own principles. Here is an illustration of the way in which the over-socialized leftist shows his real attachment to the conventional attitudes of our society while pretending to be in rebellion against it. Many leftists push for affirmative action, for moving people of colour into high-prestige jobs, for improved education in uh, people of colour schools, and more money for such schools. The way of life of the quote-unquote underclass they regard as a social disgrace. They want to integrate uh, this quote-unquote underclass into the system, make him a business executive, a lawyer, a scientist just like the upper-middle-class white people. The leftists will reply that the last thing they want is to make the man of color into a copy of the white man. Instead, they want to preserve African-American culture. But in what does this preservation of African-American culture consist? It can hardly consist of anything more than eating black, eating (laughs) their cultural food, their cultural music, their cultural clothing, and going to their cultural style church or mosque. In other words, it can express itself only in superficial matters. In all essential respects, most leftists of the over-socialized type want to make the man of color conform to white middle-class ideals. They want to make him study technical subjects, become an executive or scientist, spend his life climbing the status ladder to prove that people of color are as good as white. They want to make people of color fathers responsible. They want gangs of color to become nonviolent, etc. But these are exactly the values of the industrial technological system. The system couldn't care less what kind of music a man listens to, what kind of clothes he wears, or what religion he believes, as long as he studies in school, holds a respectable job, climbs the status ladder, and is a responsible parent, is nonviolent, and so forth. In effect, however, Much he may deny it, the over-socialized leftist wants to integrate the man of color into the system and make him adopt its values. We certainly do not claim that leftists, even of the over-socialized type, never rebel against the fundamental values of the society. Clearly, they sometimes do. Some over-socialized leftists have gone so far as to rebel against one of modern society's most important principles by engaging in physical violence. By their own account, violence is for them a form of liberation. In other words, by committing violence, they break through the psychological restraints that have been trained into them. Because they are over-socialized, these restraints have been more conforming for them than for others. Hence, their need to break free of them. But they usually justify their rebellion in terms of mainstream values. If they engage in violence, they claim to be fighting against racism or the like. We realize that many objections could be raised to the foregoing thumbnail sketch of leftist psychology. The real situation is complex, and anything like a complete description of it would take several volumes, even if the necessary da- data were available. We claim only to have indicated a very roughly the two most important tendencies in the psychology of modern leftism. The problems of the leftists are indicative of the problems of our society as a whole low self esteem depressive tendencies, and defeatism are not restricted to the left. Though they are especially noticeable in the left, they are widespread in our society, and today's society tries to socialize us to a greater extent than any previous society. If we are even told by experts how to eat, how to exercise, how to make love, how to raise our kids, and so, we are even, and so forth. Now, the power process. This is a big point that this is the fundamental point of his entire thesis. Human beings have a need probably based in biology for something that we will call the power process. This is closely related to the need for power which is widely recognized but it's not quite the same thing. The power process has four elements. The three most clear-cut of these we call goal, effort, and attainment. Everyone needs to have goals whose attainment require effort and needs to succeed attaining at least some of his goals. The fourth element is more difficult to define and may not be necessary for everyone. We call it autonomy and we'll discuss it a couple of paragraphs forward. Consider the hypothetical case of a man who can have anything he wants just by wishing for it. Such a man has power but he will develop serious psychological problems. At first he'll have a lot of fun but by and by this is the Peter Pan and neverland story but by and by he'll become acutely bored and demoralized eventually he may become clinically depressed history shows that leisured aristocracies tend to become decadent this is not true of fighting aristocracies that have had to struggle to maintain power but leisured secure aristocracies have, have no need to exert themselves usually become bored hedonistic and demoralized even though they have power This shows that power is not enough. One must have goals toward which to exercise one's power. Everyone has goals. If nothing else, to obtain the physical necessities of life, food, water, and whatever clothing and shelter are made necessary by the climate. But the leisured aristocrat obtains these things without effort. Hence his boredom and demoralization. Non-attainment of important goals results in the death of the goals Non-attainment of important goals results in death, if the goals are physical necessities, and in frustration, if non-attainment of the goals is compatible with survival. Consistent failure to attain goals throughout life results in defeatism, low self-esteem, or depression. Thus, in order to avoid serious psychological problems, a human being needs goals whose attainment requires efforts, and he must have a reasonable rate of success in attaining his goals. Surrogate activities The emperor Hirohito, instead of sinking into decadent hedonism, devoted himself to marine biology, a field in which he became distinguished. When people do not have to exert themselves to satisfy their physical needs, they often set up artificial goals for themselves. In many cases, they pursue these goals with the same energy and emotional involvement that they would otherwise have put into the search for physical necessities. Thus, the aristocrats of the Roman Empire had their literary pretensions. Many European aristocrats a few centuries ago invested tremendous time and energy in hunting, though they certainly didn't need the meat. Other aristocrats, aristocracies, have competed for status through elaborate displays of wealth, and a few, like Hirohito, have turned to science. We use the term surrogate activity to designate an activity that's directed towards an artificial goal that people set for themselves merely in order to have some goal to work towards or, let's say, merely for the sake of the fulfillment that they get from pursuing the goal. Here's a rule of thumb uh, to identify a surrogate activity. Given a person who devotes much time and energy to the pursuit of goal X, ask yourself this. If he had to devote most of his time and energy to satisfying his biological needs, and if that effort required him to use his physical and mental faculties in a varied and interesting way, Would he still feel seriously deprived because he did not attain goal X? If the answer is no, then the pursuit of the goal X is a surrogate activity. Hirohito's studies in marine biology are a clear example of a surrogate activity. On the other hand, the pursuit of sex and love, for example, is not a surrogate activity because most people, even if their existence were otherwise satisfactory, would feel deprived if they passed their lives without ever having a relationship with a member of the opposite sex the pursuit of an excessive amount of sex, more than one really needs, can be considered a surrogate activity. In modern, this might be the summary of his entire thesis right here. In modern industrial society, only a minimal effort is necessary to satisfy one's physical needs. It's enough to go through a training program, acquire some petty technical skill, then come to work on time and exert the most modest uh, effort needed to hold a job. The only requirements are a moderate amount of intelligence and, most of all, simple obedience. If one has those, society takes care of one from cradle to grave. Yes, there is an underclass that cannot take the physical necessities for granted, but we're speaking here of mainstream society. Thus, it is not surprising that modern society is full of surrogate activities. These include scientific work, athletic achievement, humanitarian work, artistic and literary creation, climbing the corporate ladder, acquisition of money and material goods, far beyond the point at which they cease to give any additional physical satisfaction, and social activism when it addresses issues that are not important for the activist personally, as in the case of white activists who work for the rights of non-white minorities. These are not always pure surrogate activities, since for many people they may be motivated in part by needs other than the need to have some goal to pursue. Scientific work may be motivated in part by a drive for prestige, artistic creation by a need to express feelings, militant social activism by hostility, but for most people who pursue them, these activities are in large part surrogate activities. For example, the majority of scientists will probably agree that fulfillment they get from their work is more important than the money and prestige they earn. For many, if not most, surrogate activities are less satisfying than the pursuit of real goals, that is, goals that people would want to attain even if their need for the power process were already fulfilled. One indication of this is the fact that in many or most cases people are deeply involved in surrogate activities are never satisfied, never at rest. Thus, the money maker constantly strives for more. The scientist no sooner solves one problem than he moves to the next. The long distance runner drives himself to run always farther and faster. Many people who pursue surrogate activities will say they get far more fulfillment from these activities than they do from their mundane business of satisfying their biological needs. But that's because, in our society, the effort needed to satisfy the biological needs has been reduced to triviality. More importantly, in our society, people do not satisfy their biological needs autonomously, but by functioning as part of an immense social machine. In contrast, people generally have a great deal of autonomy in pursuing their surrogate activities. Autonomy. This is the fourth of the, of the four points um, he described in the power process. Autonomy as a part of the power process may not be necessary for every individual, but most people need it for a greater or lesser degree of autonomy in working towards their goals. Their efforts must be undertaken on their own initiative and must be under their own direction and control. Yet most people do not have to exert this initiative, direction, and control as single individuals. It is usually enough to act as a member of a small group. Thus, if half a dozen people discuss a goal among themselves and make a successful joint effort to attain that goal, their need for the power process will be served. But if they work under rigid orders, handed down from above, that leave them no room for autonomous decision and initiative, then their need for the power process will not be served. The same is true when decisions are made on a collective basis, if the group is making collective decisions is so large that the role of each individual is insignificant. It is true, but some individuals seem to have little need for autonomy. Either their drive for power is weak, or they satisfy by identifying themselves with some powerful organization to which they belong. And then there are the unthinking animal types who seem to be satisfied with purely physical sense of power. The good combat soldier who gets his sense of power by developing fighting skills that he is quite content to use in blind obedience to his superiors. But for most people, it's through the power process, having a goal, making an autonomous effort, and attaining the, that goal that self esteem, self confidence, and a sense of power are acquired. When one does not have adequate opportunity to go through the power process, the consequences are, depending on the individual and on the way the power process is disrupted, boredom, demoralization, low self esteem, inferiority feelings, defeatism, depression anxiety, guilt, frustration, hostility, spouse or child abuse, insatiable hedonism, abnormal sexual behavior, sleep disorders, eating disorders, etc. Sources of social... He's now described the power process. Sources of social problems. Any foregoing symptoms can occur in any society, but in modern industrial society they're present on a massive scale. We aren't the first to mention that the world seems to be going crazy. This sort of thing is not normal for human societies. There is a good reason people believe that primitive man suffered from less stress and frustration and was better satisfied with his way of life than modern man is it is true that not all was sweetness and light in primitive societies abuse of women was common among the uh, australian aborigines transsexuality was fairly common among some of the american indian tribes but it does appear that generally speaking the kinds of problems that we have listed in the preceding paragraph were far less common among primitive peoples than they are in modern society. We attribute the social and psychological problems of modern society to the fact that our society requires people to live under conditions radically different from those under which the human race evolved to behave in ways that conflict with patterns of behaviour that the human race developed while living under earlier conditions. It is clear, from what we have already written, that we consider lack of opportunity to properly experience the power process as the most important of the abnormal conditions to which modern society subjects people it is not the only one before dealing with disruption of power process as a source of social problems we will discuss some of the other sources among the abnormal conditions i should just read that sentence one more time because that's his primary point it is clear from what we have already written that we consider a lack of opportunity to properly experience the power process as described above as the most important of the abnormal conditions to which the modern society subjects people. It's not the only one, but uh, before we deal with the power process we will discuss some of the other sources. Among abnormal abnormal conditions present in modern industrial society are excessive density of population, isolation of man from nature, excessive rapidity of social change, And the breakdown of natural small-scale communities such as the extended family, the village, or the tribe. It is well known that crowding increases stress and aggression. The degree of crowding that exists today and the isolation of man from nature are consequences of technological progress. All pre-industrial societies were predominantly rural. The Industrial Revolution vastly increased the size of cities in proportion of the population that lives in them. And modern agricultural technology has made it possible for the earth to support a far denser population than it ever did before. Also, technology exas- exacerbates the effect of crowding because it puts increased disruptive powers in people's hands. For example, a variety of noise making devices, power mowers, radios, motorcycles, etc. If the use of these devices is unrestricted, people who want peace and quiet are frustrated by the noise. If their use is restricted, people who use the devices are frustrated by the regulations. But these machines had never been invented. Had these machines never been invented, there would have been no conflict and no frustration generated by them. So that's where he and I disconnect that last sentence. Uh, But we'll talk about that later. For primitive societies, the natural world, which usually change only slowly, provided a stable framework and therefore a sense of security. In the modern world, it's human society that dominates nature rather than the other way around. And modern society changes very rapidly, owing to technological change. Thus, there is no stable framework. The conservatives are fools. They whine about the decay of traditional values, yet they enthusiastically support technological progress and economic growth. Apparently, it never occurs to them that you can't make rapid, drastic changes in the technology and the economy of a society without causing rapid changes in all other aspects of a society, and that such rapid changes inevitably break down traditional values. The breakdown of traditional values, to some extent, implies the breakdown of bonds that hold together traditional small-scale social groups. The disintegration of small-scale social groups is also promoted by the fact that modern conditions often require or tempt individuals to move to new locations, separating themselves from their communities. Beyond that, technological society has to weaken family ties and local communities if it is to function efficiently. In modern society, an individual's loyalty must be first to the system and only secondarily to a small-scale community. Because if the internal loyalties of small-scale communities were stronger than loyalty to the system, such communities would pursue their own advantage at the expense of the system. Suppose that a public official or corporation, corporate, corporation executive appoints his cousin, his friend, or his co-religionist to a position rather than appointing the person best qualified for the job. He's permitted personal loyalty to supersede his loyalty to the system. And that, his, and that is nepotism or, or discrimination, both of which are terrible sins in modern society. Would-be industrial societies that have done a poor job of subordinating personal or local loyalties to loyalty to the system are usually very inefficient. Look at Latin America. Thus, an advanced industrial society can tolerate only those small-scale communities that are emasculated, tamed, and made into tools of the system. Crowding, rapid change, and the breakdown of communities have been widely recognized as sources of social problems, but we do not believe they are enough to account for the extent of the problems that are seen today. A few pre-industrial cities were very large and crowded, yet their inhabitants did not do not seem to have suffered from psychological problems to the same extent as modern man in America today, there still are uncrowded rural areas, and we find there are there the same problems as in urban areas, though the problems tend to be less acute in rural areas. Thus crowding does not seem to be the decisive factor on the growing edge of the American frontier during the 19th century, the mobility of the population probably broke down extended families and small-scale social groups to at least the same extent as these are broken down today. In fact, many nuclear families lived by choice in such isolation, having no neighbors within several miles that that they belonged to, no community at all, yet they do not seem to have developed problems as a result. Furthermore, change in American frontier society was very rapid and deep. A man might be born and raised in a log cabin outside the reach of law and order and fed largely on wild meat. By the time he arrived at old age, he might be working at a regular job and living in an ordered community with effective law enforcement. This was a deep change this was a deeper change than that which typically occurs in the life of modern individual. Yet it does not seem to have led to psychological problems. In fact, nineteenth century American society had an optimistic and self-confident tone quite unlike that of today's the difference we argue is that modern man has the sense largely justified that change is imposed on him where the 19th century frontiersman had the sense also largely justified that he created change himself by his own choice thus a pioneer settled on a piece of land of his own choosing and made it into a farm through his own effort In those days, an entire county might have only had a couple of hundred inhabitants and was by far more isolated and autonomous entity than a modern county is. Hence, the pioneer farmer participated as a member of a relatively small group in the creation of an ordered community. One may well question whether the creation of this community was an improvement, but at any rate, it satisfied the pioneer's need for the power process. It would be possible to give other examples of society in which there has been rapid change and or lack of close community ties without the kind of massive behavioural aberration that is seen in today's industrial society. We contend that the most important cause of social and psychological problems in the modern society is the fact that people have insufficient opportunity to go through the power process in a normal way. We don't mean to say that modern society is the only one in which the power process has been disruptive disrupted. Probably most, if not all, civilized societies have interfered with the power process to a greater or lesser extent. But in modern industrial society, the problem has become particularly acute. Leftism, at least, in its recent mid-to-late 20th century form, is in part a symptom of deprivation with respect to the power process. Disruption of the Power Process in Modern Society Human drives into three groups. Those drives that can be satisfied with minimal effort, those that can be satisfied but only at the cost of serious effort, and those that cannot be adequately satisfied no matter how much effort one makes. The power process of satisfying the drives of the second group. The power process is the process of satisfying the drives of the second group, which is the ones of serious effort. The process, the more drives there are in a third group, The more there is frustration anger eventually defeatism depression etc in modern industrial society natural human drives tend to be pushed to the first and third groups and the second group tends to consist increasingly of artificially created drives in primitive societies physical necessities generally fall into group two they can be obtained but only at the cost of serious effort but modern society tends to guarantee the physical necessities to everyone excuse me in exchange for only a minimal effort Hence, physical needs are pushed into group one. There may be disagreement about whether the effort needed to hold a job is minimal, quote unquote, but usually in lower to middle level jobs, whatever effort is required is merely that of obedience. You sit or stand where you are told, sit or stand, do what you are told to do in the way you are told. Seldom do you, ha- <coughs> do you have to exert yourself seriously, and in any case, you have, to ha- you have hardly any autonomy in work. So the need for the power process is not well served. Social needs, such as sex, love, and status, often remain a group two in modern society, depending on the situation of the individual. But except for people who have a particularly strong drive for, stat- for status, the effort required to fulfill the social drives is in- insufficient to satisfy adequately the need for the power process. So. Certain artificial needs have been created that fall into group two, hence serve the need for the power process. Advertising and marketing techniques have been developed that make many people feel they need things that their grandparents never desired or even dreamed of. It requires serious effort to earn enough money to satisfy these artificial needs, hence they fall into group two. A modern man must satisfy his need for the power process largely through the pursuit of the artificial needs created by the advertising and marketing industry and through surrogate activities. It seems that for many people, maybe the majority of these artificial forms of the power process are insufficient. A theme that appears repeatedly in the writings of social critics of the second half of the 20th century is the sense of purposelessness that afflicts many people in modern society. This purposelessness is often called by other names such as anomic or middle-class vacuity. I kind of... Uh, mention this in episode 0. We suggest that the so-called identity crisis is actually a search for a sense of purpose Often for commitment to a suitable surrogate activity. It may be that the exit that Existentialism is in large part a response to the purposelessness of modern life Very widespread in modern societies The search for quote-unquote fulfillment but We think that for the majority of people An activity whose main goal is fulfillment, that is a surrogate activity, does not bring completely satisfactory fulfillment. In other words, it does not fully satisfy the need for the power process. See paragraph 41. That need can be fully satisfied only through activities that have some external goals, such as physical necessities, sex, love, status, revenge, etc. Moreover, where goals are pursued through earning money, climbing the status ladder, Are functioning as part of the system in some other way most people are not in a position to pursue their goals autonomously most workers are someone else's employee and as we pointed out in paragraph 61 we must they must spend their days doing what they're told to do in the way they're told to do it even people who are in business for themselves have only limited autonomy it is a chronic complaint of small business persons and entrepreneurs that their hands are tied by excessive government relations uh, reg- government regulations some some of these regulations are doubtless unnecessary, but for the most part, government regulations are essential and inevitable parts of our extremely complex society a large this is this is him talking this is uh this is not the the view of of um, the mark world worldview a large portion of small business today operates. On the franchise system, it was reported in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago that many of the franchise-granting companies require the applicants for franchises to take a personality test that is designed to exclude those who have creativity and initiative because such persons are not sufficiently docile to go along obediently with a franchise system. I didn't know that. This excludes from small business many of the people who most need its autonomy. Today people live more by virtue of what the system does for them or to them by any, than by virtue of what they do for themselves. And what they do for themselves is done more and more along the channels laid down by the system. Opportunities tend to be those that the system provides. The opportunities must be exploited in accord with rules and regulations and techniques prescribed by experts must be followed if there is to be a chance of success. Thus. The power process is disrupted in our society through a deficiency of real goals and a deficiency of autonomy in pursuing those goals, but it is also disrupted because of those human drives that fall into group three, the drives that one cannot adequately satisfy no matter how much effort one makes. One of these drives is the need for security. Our lives depend on decisions made by other people. We have no control over these decisions. This is, by the way, this is a point that I never fully considered consciously until i read this our lives depend on decisions made by other people we have no control over these decisions and usually we do not even know the people who make them we live in a world in which relatively few people maybe 500 or a thousand make the important decisions philip Heyman of harvard law school quoted by anthony lewis in the new york times april 21, 1995. that was the quotation We live in a world in which relatively few people, maybe 500 or 1,000, make the important decisions. New York Times, quote, our lives depend on whether safety standards at a nuclear power plant are properly maintained, on how much pesticide is allowed to get into our food, or how much pollution is in our air, or how skillful or incompetent our doctor is. Whether we lose or get a job may depend on decisions made by government economists or corporate executives and so forth. Most individuals are not in a position to secure themselves against these threats more than a very to, um, more than a very limited extent. The individual's search for security is therefore frustrated, which leads to a sense of permanent powerlessness. It may be objected that primitive man is physically less secure than modern man, as is shown by his shorter life expectancy. Hence, modern man suffers from less not more than the amount of insecurity it is normal for human beings. But psychological security does not closely correspond with physical security. What makes us feel secure is not so much objective security as a sense of confidence in our ability to take care of ourselves. Primitive man, threatened by a fierce animal or by hunger, can fight in self-defense or travel in search of food. He has no certainty of success in these efforts, but he is by no means helpless against the things that threaten him. The modern individual, on the other hand, is threatened by many things against which he is helpless. Nuclear accidents, carcinogens and foods, environmental pollution, war, increasing taxes, invasion of his privacy by large organizations, nationwide social or economic phenomena that may disrupt his way of life. It is true that primitive man is powerlessness is powerless against some of the things that threaten him. Disease, for example, but he can accept the risk of disease stoically. It is part of the nature of things. It is no one's fault unless it is the fault of some imaginary and personal demon. But threats to the modern individual tend to be man-made. They are not the result of chance, but are imposed on him by other persons whose decision he, as an individual, is unable to influence. Consequently, he feels frustrated humiliated, and angry. These two paragraphs remind me of um, family farm communities that I was uh, very closely uh, involved with as as a kid all through my childhood and teens. And uh, these remote decisions like commodity pricing, uh, bank interest rates, um, equipment, uh, uh, leasing terms, those kinds of things, prices of of um, grain, all these kinds of things. That these these were like extremely entrepreneurial, stoic, take care of my own kinds of guys, and they were completely at the mercy of a bunch of these anonymous decision making bodies that he's alluding to here. Thus, primitive man, for the most part, has his security in his own hands, either as an individual or as a member of small group whereas the security of modern man is in the hands of persons or organizations that are too remote or too large for him to be able to personally influence. So, modern man's drive for security tends to fall into groups one and three. In some areas, food, shelter, etc., his security is assured at the cost of only trivial effort, whereas in other areas he cannot attain security. The foregoing greatly simplifies the real situation, but it, does not, but it does indicate, in a rough, general way, how the condition of modern man differs from that of primitive man. People have many transitory drives or impulses that are necessarily frustrated in modern life, hence fall into group three. One may become angry, but modern society cannot permit fighting. In many situations, it does not even permit verbal aggression. When going somewhere, one may be in a hurry, or one may be in a mood to travel slowly, but one generally has no choice but to move with the flow of traffic and obey the traffic signals. One may want to do one's work in a different way, but usually one can work only in accordance with the rules laid down by one's employer. In many other ways as well, modern man is strapped down by a network of rules and regulations, explicit or implicit, that frustrate many of his impulses and thus interfere with the power process. Most of these regulations cannot be dispensed with because they are necessary for the functioning of industrial society. Modern society is, in certain respects, extremely permissive. In matters that are irrelevant to the functioning of the system, we can generally do what we please. We can believe in any religion we like, as long as it does not encourage behavior that is dangerous to the system. We can go to bed with anyone we like, as long as we practice, quote unquote, safe sex. We can do anything we like, as long as it is unimportant but in all important matters, the system tends increasingly to regulate our behavior. Behavior is regulated not only through the explicit rules and not only by the government. Control is exercised through the indirect coercion or through psychological pressure or manipulation, and by organizations other than the government or by the system as a whole. Most large organizations use some form of propaganda to manipulate public attitudes or behavior. Propaganda is not limited to commercials and ads, but sometimes it is not even consciously intended as propaganda by the people who make it. For instance, the content of entertainment programming is a powerful form of propaganda, an example of indirect coercion. There is no law that says we have to go to work every day and follow our employer's orders. Legally, there is nothing to prevent us from going to live in the wild like primitive people or from going into business for ourselves. But in practice, there is very little wild country left, and there is room in the economy for only a limited number of small business owners. Hence, most of us can survive only as someone else's employee. We suggest that modern man's obsession with longevity and with maintaining physical vigor and sexual attractiveness to an advanced age is a symptom of unfulfillment resulting from deprivation. With respect to the power process, the midlife crisis also is such a symptom. So is the lack of interest in having children. It is fairly common in modern society, but almost unheard of in primitive societies. In primitive societies, life is a succession of stages. It needs, and the needs and purposes of one stage have been fulfilled. There's no particular reluctance about passing on to the next stage. A young man goes through the power process by becoming a hunter, hunting not for sport or fulfillment, but to get meat that is necessary for food. As an aside, I think rites of passage, I've I've written about that, but rites and passage for men and and women have gone the way of the dodo bird, and I think we're suffering for that. That's just uh, my aside. In in young women, the process is more complex. With greater emphasis on social power, we we won't discuss that here. This phase, having been successfully passed through, the young man has no reluctance about setting down to the responsibilities of of raising a family. In contrast, some modern people indefinitely postpone having children because they are too busy seeking some kind of fulfillment. We suggest that the fulfillment they need is adequate experience of the power process with real goals instead of artificial goals and surrogate activities. Again, having successfully raised his children, going through the power process by providing with them with the physical necessities, the primitive man feels his work is done and he's prepared to accept old age, if he survives that long and death. Many modern people, on the other hand, are disturbed by the prospect of physical deterioration and death, as is shown by the amount of effort they spend trying to maintain their physical condition and appearance and health. We argue that this is due to unfulfillment resulting from the fact that they have never put their physical powers to any practical use, have never gone through the power process, using their bodies in a serious way. It's not the primitive man who has used his body daily for practical purposes, who fears the deterioration of age, but the modern man, who has never had a practical use for his body beyond walking from his car to his house. It is the man whose need for the power process has been satisfied during his life, who is best prepared to accept the end of that life. In response to the arguments of this section, someone will say, Society must find a way to give people the opportunity to go through the power process. For such people, the value of the opportunity is destroyed by the very fact that society gives it to them. What they need is to find or make their own opportunities. As long as the system gives them their opportunities, it still has them on a leash. To attain autonomy, they must get off that leash. How some people adjust. I'll, I'll uh, maybe read about 10 more paragraphs, and, and that will be... And then we'll move into the questions and take up the answers from last, uh, last episode. And we'll finish the, uh, the manifesto in, the, in episode two. At paragraph 77. Not everyone in industrial technological society suffers from psychological problems. Some people even profess to be quite satisfied with society as it is. We now discuss some of the reasons why people differ so greatly in their response to modern society. First, there doubtless are differences in this in the strength of the drive for power individuals with weak drive for power may have relatively little need to go through the power process or at least relatively little need for autonomy in that process These are docile types who would have been happy as plantation workers in the old South we don't mean to sneer at plantation workers of the old South to their credit most of them were not content with their servitude. We do sneer at people who are content with servitude. Some people may have some exceptional drive in pursuing which they satisfy their need for the power process. For example, those who have an unusually strong drive for social status may spend their whole lives climbing the status ladder without ever getting bored with that game. Those people baffle me too. People vary in their susceptibility to advertising and marketing techniques. Some are so susceptible that even if they make a great deal of money, they cannot satisfy their constant craving for the shiny new toys that the marketing industry dangles before their eyes. So they always feel hard-pressed financially, even if their income is large and their cravings are frustrated. Yes, we all know people like that. Some people have low susceptibility to advertising and marketing. These are the people who aren't interested in money. Material acquisition doesn't serve their need for power, for the power process. People who have medium susceptibility to advertising and marketing are able to earn enough money to satisfy their craving for goods and services, but only at the cost of serious effort, putting in overtime, taking a second job, earning promotions, etc. Thus, material acquisition serves their need for the power process, but it does not necessarily follow that their need is fully satisfied. They may have insufficient autonomy in the power process. Their work may consist of following orders, and some of their drives may be frustrated. We are guilty of oversimplifications in the preceding paragraphs because we have assumed that the desire of material acquisition entirely a creation of advertising marketing. Of course, it's not that simple. Some people partly satisfy their need for power by identifying themselves with a powerful organization or a mass movement. An individual lacking goals or power joins a movement or an organization, adopts its goals as his own, and then works towards these goals. When some of the goals are attained, the individual, even through, though his personal efforts have played only an insignificant part in the attainment of goals, feels through his identification with movement or organization as if he had gone through the power process himself. This phenomenon was exploited by the fascists, Nazis, and communists. Our society uses it too, though less crudely. For example, Manuel Nor- Noriega was an irritant to the U.S. The uh, U.S. Uh, made a goal, punished Noriega. They called him Strong Men, Noriega. The U.S. invaded Panama, exerted an effort collectively, and punished Noriega, its handman of goal, and the U.S. went through the power process. And many Americans, because of their association or identification with their nation, experienced the power process vicariously. Hence, the widespread public approval of the Panama invasion it gave people a sense of power. Excuse me, we see the same phenomenon in armies, corporations, political parties, humanitarian organizations, religious or ideological movements. In particular, leftist movements tend to attract people who are seeking to satisfy their need for power, but more, for most people, identification with a large organization or a mass movement doesn't fully satisfy the need for power. Another way in which people satisfy their need for the power process is through surrogate activities, as we explained earlier. A surrogate activity is an activity directly towards directed towards an artificial goal. For instance, there is no practical motive for building an enormous muscles, hitting a little ball into a hole, or acquiring a complete series of postage stamps yet. Many people in our society devote themselves with passion to bodybuilding, golf, or stamp collecting. Some people are more other-directed than others and therefore will more readily attach importance to a surrogate activity simply because the people around them treat it as important or because society tells them it's important. That's why some people get very serious about essentially trivial activities such as sports or bridge or chess or arcane scholarly pursuits, whereas others are more clear-sighted, never see these things as anything but the surrogate activities that they are, and consequently never attach enough importance to them to satisfy their need of the power process. It only remains to point out that in many cases a person's way of earning a living is also a surrogate activity, not a pure surrogate activity, since part of the motive is to gain the physical necessities of life, as, as well as social status and the luxuries that advertising makes them want. But many people put into their work far more effort than is necessary to earn whatever money and status they require, and this extra effort constitutes a surrogate activity. This extra effort, together with the emotional investment that accompanies it, Is one of the most potent forces acting towards a continual development and perfecting of the system with negative consequences for individual freedom. Especially for the most creative scientists and engineers, work tends to be largely a surrogate activity. Yes, this has always confounded me as well. This point is so important that it deserves a separate discussion which we shall give it in a couple of paragraphs. In this section, Once that discussion's over, we'll wrap this this episode. In this section, we have explained how many people in modern society do satisfy the need for the power process to a greater or lesser extent, but we think that for the majority of people, the need for the power process is not fully satisfied. In the first place, those who have an insatiable drive for status or who get firmly hooked on a surrogate activity or who identify strongly enough with a movement or organization are exceptional personalities others are not fully satisfied with surrogate activities or by identification with organization. In the second place, too much control is imposed by the system through explicit regulation or through socialization which results in a deficiency of autonomy and in frustration due to the impossibility of attaining certain goals and the necessity of restraining too many impulses. But even if most people in industrial technological society well satisfied we would still be opposed to that form of society because among other reasons we see we consider it demeaning to fulfill one's needs for the power process through surrogate activities or through identification with an organization rather than the pursuit of real goals the motives of scientists number 87 so we'll go to 92 and call it quits science and technology provide the most important examples of surrogate activity, some scientists claim that they're motivated by curiosity, quote unquote, or by a desire to benefit humanity. But it is easy to see that neither of these can be the principal motive of most scientists. As for curiosity, that notion is simply absurd. Most scientists work on highly specialized problems that are not the object of normal curiosity. For example, this is remember, this is a mathematician, so he, he knows scientists. For example, is an astronomer, a mathematician, or an entom- entomologist curious about the properties of isopropyl trimethyl-, trimethyl methane? Of course not. Only a chemist is curious about such a thing, and he's curious about it only because chemistry is his surrogate activity. Is the chemist curious about the appropriate classification of a new species of beetle? No. That question is of interest only to the entomologist and he is interested in it only because entomology is his surrogate activity. If the chemist and the entomologist had to exert themselves seriously to obtain the physical necessities, and if that effort exercised their abilities in an interesting way, but in some non-scientific pursuit, then they wouldn't give a damn about isopropyl trimethylmethane or the classification of beetles. Suppose that lack of funds for postgraduate education had led the chemist to become an insurance broker instead of a chemist. In that case, he would have been very interested in insurance matters, but would have cared nothing about isopropyl trimethylmethane. In any case, it's not normal to put into the satisfaction of mere curiosity the amount of time and effort that scientists put into their work. The curiosity explanation for scientists just doesn't stand up. The benefit of humanity explanation doesn't work any better. Some scientific work has no conceivable relation to the welfare of the human race. Most of archaeology or comparative linguistics, for example, this is really ironic that he used the term comparative linguistics, which is the exact discipline that actually caught him using this manifesto. Um, Some other areas of science present obviously dangerous possibilities, yet scientists in these areas are just as enthusiastic about their work as those who develop vaccines or study air pollution. Consider the case of Dr. Edward Teller, who had an obvious emotional involvement in promoting nuclear power plants. Did this involvement stem from a desire to benefit humanity? If so, then why didn't Dr. Teller get emotional about other humanitarian causes? If he was such a humanitarian, then why did he help develop the H-bomb? As with many other scientific achievements, it is very much open to question whether nuclear power plants actually do benefit humanity. Does the cheap electricity outweigh the accumulative waste, accumulating waste and the risk of accidents? Dr. Teller only saw one side of the equation. Clearly, his emotional involvement with nuclear power arose not from desire to benefit humanity, but from a personal fulfillment he got from his work and from seeing it put to practical use. The same is true of scientists generally. With the possible rare exceptions, their motive is neither curiosity nor a benefit of humanity, but the need to go through the power process, to have a goal, a scientific problem to solve, to make an effort, research, and to attain the goal, solution of the problem. Science is a surrogate activity because scientists work mainly for the fulfillment they get out of the work of itself. Of course, it's not that simple. Other motives do play a role for many scientists. Money and status, for example. Some scientists may be the persons of the type who have an insatiable drive for status, and this may provide much of the motivation. No doubt, the majority of scientists, like the majority of general population, are more or less susceptible to advertising and marketing techniques. And need money to save to, to satisfy their craving for goods and services. Thus, science is not a pure surrogate activity, but is in large part a surrogate activity. Also, science and technology constitute a power mass movement, and many scientists gratify their need for power through identification with this mass movement. Thus, okay, so you, that he's saying that it's also a. a Satisfaction on a collective level, the way the Noriega case with the US government. Thus, science marches on blindly without regard to the real welfare of human race, of the human race, or to any other standard, obedient only to the psychological need of the scientists and of the government officials and corporate executives who provide the funds for research. Okay, we'll save this chapter or paragraph ninety-three for episode two. I, um, I'm really enjoying rereading this. I thought I was going to be able to skim and, and give the high points, but that would only corrupt it, so I'm, I'm actually reading it word for word for the most part. But even though, say he's got two-thirds of a point to make there that's still valid, in, in my opinion, I, you know, everybody's got their own view probably, but um, I still find it extremely refreshing that it's, it's original you can't you can't you can't uh judge him for for being unoriginal he's 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 stepping way outside the norm and taking a look at things systematically and i I find that extremely refreshing even if at least a third of the conclusions seem at least mildly off base all right so let's move into our uh wrap up and trivia section for this episode and we'll pick this one up uh in episode two uh mildly off base of course is uh Slight understatement, <laughs> but uh, I as I was reading the uh, power process to you now, uh it just dawned on me like a ton of bricks that the um, power process has evolved, and well, I guess a couple of comments one is this case is a perfect example of how getting yourself outside of society to take a look at things allows you the ability to see things that most most aren't willing to see or talk about. Um, but it also is a lesson that, you know, if you try and mute free speech, you're going to get uh, uncorrected ideas. So here's a brilliant, brilliant guy who had brilliant, brilliant insights and was misled in terms of uh, what the appropriate response should be. And uh, he had no intellectual feedback because of his situation. Because he couldn't speak these things in the public square, so to speak, he had nobody that was able to, to steer him back online to something, some kind of a useful conclusion. But anyway, yes, the power process, it seems o- obvious now in this day and age, up until probably 60s and 70s, the power process was 100% material-oriented. So security, safety, community, nourishment, education, those kinds of things. Uh, But now, I mean, if you just look at the spiritual crisis worldwide, I, I wish we could measure it, but I think the Peterson phenomenon of last year... Uh, speaks volumes for the hunger, for a logical spirituality, some kind of a grounded spirituality that has not nothing to do with the dogma that we all get turned off by in our catechism classes or wherever, and has everything to do with wisdom and so his lectures on the psychological significance of the biblical stories is the perfect bridge it's uh christianity for atheists it's um and i think it speaks volumes for the appetite of the world at the moment so i pulled into the spe- the uh show notes the visual for japanese ikigai and i think that that is just such a powerful framework, visual um, that kind of can puts the power process into career-oriented language. And you can see how if you don't have all four of these um, working for you at some point in your adult life, I think part of the journey is going through a number of these imbalances until you are able to get all four happening in your life. Um, y- then y- y- you can see that how uh, dissatisfying your, your life will be if you're not able to get all four of these humming together. So if you're not, if you're not uh, able to see the visual, it's really the intersection set of what you love, what you really love, what you're good at, what you get paid for, and what the world needs. So when he's talking about surrogate activities, which, sorry to be crass, but when I think of surrogate activities, I think of a circle jerk of sorts. I'm talking about like, it's like intellectual uh, stimulation that goes nowhere. So that's, or, you know, uh, stimulating your skills or your abilities but it actually has no lasting contribution. I think that's a good way of thinking of these, these proxies because people uh, tend to compare it to the alternative. It's way, way better to be challenging yourself on a scientific problem and getting prestige in your professional circles. And maybe you never sit back and say, well, uh, what, did I, what have I done for the world today. <laughs> you're satisfied with, with the other three, with basically um, doing what you enjoy doing, doing what you're good at, and doing what you get paid for. And you never think, "Have I? am I resonating with the appetite the world needs right now? So um, this Ikigai visual is extremely powerful. And most of us don't have the luxury to start thinking and considering and moving it our activities into alignment with this until probably our 40s. But um, but it's something to shoot for and I think it's a good framework to think about the power process. Uh, Mark Passio calls calls what he does the, the great work. So essentially waking up the world. Waking up the world on both levels, the microcosm and the macrocosm. At the micro level it's, it's getting in touch with the imperial self, getting in touch with your own personal sovereignty, and that's really what natural law is teaching—to what the unlimited nature of your being, and what um, what's your what are your natural-born rights, God-given, uh, and then the defense principle goes along with defending anybody that tries to transgress against those rights. That's the great work—is waking yourself up, and once you get yourself. To a certain point, uh, having the skills and abilities to help share the journey with a broader population, with your community and beyond, and so I think that the great work and whatever that means for you is is really what the um, what the world is starving for right now. So it doesn't mean that. You know there are all kinds of great professions. We'll take this up in one of the trivia answers for next week. Doesn't mean that if you're a, a, a librarian, you know you're doing great things. Doesn't mean everybody has to drop everything and and um, everybody has to contribute to their own to their own abilities. Uh, obviously, so if you see the ikigai, the ikigai visual, you'll get the idea. And it's going to be different for everyone. But the spiritual awakening. Through knowledge and understanding, which is the tirade that Mark is on, um, you know, contributing to that. That seems to be, uh, from my perspective, the number one starvation of the world at the moment. Uh, but we'll continue on that theme in future shows. So here's the quiz answers, prom- as promised. Um, the word occult. So these are these are the results that Mark had. Uh, from the quiz that I gave in at the end of episode zero, he had 95%. Could not define the word occult. The point with that question is that the mind controllers, the what does he call them, social engineers, they hide, uh, they hide, they hide the most meaningful bits of knowledge in the most obvious places. But the word occult has been Associated through Hollywood as being satanic and dark and evil, but the word occult is actually just means hidden. So there's occult knowledge that's actually powerful for everybody that's been hidden for generations, and if you don't know that, when the w- the moment you see occult knowledge, people look away because they're they think they're going to see vampires and Frankenstein and whatever else. So 95 uh, percent of the people he spoke to couldn't define the word occult. Zero percent could correctly define a right. Now, I might do some misjustice on this. Maybe I'll try and insert the exact literal answers for these questions. But right is essentially a human right is essentially God-given, or you can say, natural-born uh... it's it's actually part of the laws of the universe and uh... a human right is anything that's not doesn't transgress another sentient being so if you're not wronging anybody you have every right to do that there's no such thing as a victimless crime uh... okay seventy nine percent of people believe that rights come from human beings so he's trying to make the point with this data how unbelievably socially engineered we've been and uh the cage of our mind control and just some fundamental understanding we have to snap out of. 79% believe that rights come from human beings. Imagine that. Imagine uh, that an Eskimo born in the above the Arctic Circle uh, has to wait around for somebody to grant him or her human rights. Does that make any sense? So 79% of people believe their rights come from human beings. 53% of people believe that some humans have rights that others don't. Think about that. <laughs> 53% think that there are m- multiple classes of humans with different r- levels of rights. Uh, 78% believe that taxation by government is morally legitimate. So uh, the way Mark explains this is your income is the fruits of your labor. So you're taking your skills and abilities and your will, and you're applying it to some endeavor. And you get some kind of a payback for that, and that's the fruits of your labors. Now somebody is coming in, somebody from some anonymous part of the country is coming in and telling you that 30, 40, 50, 60% of the value you created for yourself belongs to them. Okay, (laughs) Think about that. Think about the moral illegitimacy of that. That is gangster. But um, anyway, so that's the point of that. Of that stat 78% of people believe that taxation is necessary for society to function okay so this is just absolute brainwashing think about any enterprise that works magically that works beautifully so think of a Saturday morning farmers market it's all voluntary right everybody's involved their ability to what their offering is sets their prices it's all the whole thing is voluntary do you need a government involved in something like that so why in god's name do four out of five people believe that the that they need to give their money to some anonymous body to help society function that's baffling 63 percent believe drug laws are morally legitimate and necessary. So again, take the Eskimo above the Arctic Circle. Somebody is going to tell that family and tell that person what they can and cannot experiment with from the natural world. Does that make any sense? (laughs) Uh, 64% believe that an order giver is more culpable than an order follower. Now this is one I had to that Mark had to move my thinking. I I was definitely guilty in this. When you think about, let's just say, a president, a president, giving an order to somebody that's in a um, remote command center in Las Vegas, that's sending drones to the other side of the world, that's bombing people in poor poor, less advanced countries, okay? So the president gives the order. The drone operator does it, okay? Who is more culpable? He's getting 64% of people believe that the president in this case is more culpable than the order follower. In other words, that the order follower has no culpability (laughs) or secondary culpability. So think about that. Think about how you're taking your, your, your sovereign being and handing it over to somebody else and, and letting them use your abilities for uh, immoral means, and you, they think you can stand back and say, Ah, uh, the devil made me do it. That you, you don't have any moral, <laughs> or you're, you're, at least your moral claim uh, is secondary to the order giver so the uh, answer in that one is the order follower is the culpable one. The order giver who knows what's happening up there or what their motives are but if you're, if you're perpetrating a crime or an immoral act you're the culpable one. 74% uh, do not think firearm ownership is a human right I know this is a touchy one, um, especially in my home country and most of Europe. But this comes back to knowing your rights. Uh, If we all lived in the Garden of Eden and we all lived morally, nobody would need to own a, a firearm, right? But the problem is that there's this disconnect. We've been convinced that some people can carry firearms and some people can't. So that makes the population completely uh, handing over their the rights. They've got no defense. They've got no defense against the guys that have the guns under man's law. So basically, this point is that everyone has the right to defend their own personal rights to the full force ability. So whatever it takes to defend your rights you have every right to do so uh and a hun- and then and this is my experience even more lately somehow people are completely off base with their belief system with all of this and then at the end of the day 100% believe that they're moral so they're still able to say i've got a good heart go to bed at night i've got a good heart i bombed syrian children today with a drone, but I was just following orders. At least I've got a good heart. So <laughs> this is the, the nothing, la- nothing funny about that, but it's just, it's just a shock that, that just the very basic fundamentals of morality. You could probably interview a six-year-old, and he, would probably, he or she would probably have better answers than these college grads that he was probably talking to, that that's how far off base we get. Because we're never ever taught what our natural born rights are, where they come, what our right to self defense is, uh, who's culpable uh, for your own actions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So anyway, I will try and find the language. I mean, he usually defines the word occult like into Latin, and so I'll see if I can find a little bit more explicit answers to include in the show notes. But um, that's the gist. Okay, for wrap up now. Questions for next week. What are the four main tenets of modern Satanism? What are the four main tenets of modern Satanism? What, if any, relationship is there between morality and freedom? What are the key distinctions? So question two is, what, if any, relationship is there between morality and freedom? Three, what are the key distinctions between a culture, a religion, and a cult? This question has been ringing in my mind uh, a lot this year. I watched Waco. I've been very fascinated with the cult phenomenon, and uh, those guys in Waco, the ones telling the stories uh, after, I and mean some that were killed in the in the assault, um, they just tiptoed into that situation. They 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 were completely normal people trying to trying to live outside the norm, and then found themselves into a, into a cult situation. I know I'm not saying that, that, it, I'm not saying that they deserved any of that, but, uh, but I think this is an interesting question to answer. What are the key distinctions between a culture, because some cultures are so strong they become a religion, or they become a cult? How do you know when your social circle or community is one of these? What are the litmus tests? What are the eight pillars of Buddhism? What's the eightfold path? for Buddhists. And number five, what are the 14 signposts to slavery? Compiled by Dr. Warren Carroll and Mike Djorgovich, um, who was a refugee from Yugoslavian community communism. What are the 14 signposts to slavery? That's at the end of the book called uh, None Dare Call It Conspiracy. 14 signposts to slavery. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I've included in the back some of the microcosm, macrocosm uh, visuals. And uh, thanks for hanging in. It was long, but uh, I think we're getting into some really interesting material. So tune in, and we'll pick it up and finish it off next week. Thanks. (laughs) have any excuses left for technology i've got all the pieces in place with the exception of a couple of adapters for the on location option when it comes along Uh, i've got all the linkages in place on the podcast website now for the for whatever player you'd like to use and um and youtube is linked in as well so in the next episodes lined up we have a plan for that one and we'll just kind of follow the feedback and follow the um the microcosm to lead us towards what the following topic will be after that but uh, I found this a rich a rich journey absolutely so looking forward to your feedback give us a like and we'll keep it coming I again kept a link for a, a product I was happy with um, through the that I heard about through the Jordan Peterson podcast the Harry's shave Club they've got uh, flexible options and Christmas gifts and what have you so if you're interested. Head on over there. The link is on the podcast site, uh, as well as a few other links. I included one to a doctor in exile, actually that uh, that I still I still use some of her advice on her journey. She was basically unlicensed for healing people without pharmaceuticals, so um, she's a, a Harvard MD. Uh, anyhow, there's a bunch of related links like that uh in the podcast episode one section and we'll get in touch next week uh enjoyed the ride all right talk to you then